Now, as you know, we concluded 1 Timothy last week, and we are working our way through the pastoral epistles, but it will be a couple of weeks before we move on in the pastorals. And this morning, we're looking for our communion at Hebrews chapter 9, the first 14 verses. Hebrews chapter 9, the first 14 verses. Let us together bow in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, who only can save sinners, that you will open this text to us through the powerful working of your Spirit, so that Christ himself may preach his word to our hearts as the word is proclaimed by this feeble instrument, this minister of the word. May the great shepherd of the sheep shepherd his flock through these efforts. And may the same Holy Spirit who has inspired this book so that it is inerrant in the whole and in the part, may he now illumine its page so that we may see Jesus here. Work within our hearts that which we need, salvation, ongoing sanctification, that we, your people, may trust you more and rely even more deeply upon the cross of Jesus. And for those among us today who are strangers to grace, we would ask that you would be merciful to them and open their hearts, that no one would leave this place lost, but that everyone might be saved, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. People of God, 
This is good news from heaven. Good news for our souls. That's what we have in this text. The gospel of grace is good news from heaven. It is not law and should not be confused with the law. Gospel is sheer promise, and that is what we have here. Sheer promise. Through the blood of Jesus, our sin is no longer remembered against us. The writer leads us into the heart of this blessing by showing how the inadequacies of the old are met in Jesus Christ. Now, he begins firstly by showing to us the inadequacy of the Old Testament tabernacle, and he does that in the first five verses. Now, remember, as he is writing, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted to return to the old. So this book contrasts the shadow of the old with the glory that has arrived in Christ. Why go back, he is saying to them? What is there but shadow? Begin to understand the stupendous thing that has happened in the coming of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us. So in verse 1 he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then he begins to describe the sanctuary, the tabernacle. The sanctuary was a place on earth where God manifested his presence. As F.F. Bruce put it, an earthly place of holiness. The sanctuary proclaimed its own temporary character. The description is given here in brief. Two chambers, the holy place with the lampstand, the table, and bread placed weekly, 12 loaves. The most holy place and only the high priest went behind the veil entering once per year. The ark covered with gold containing manna and Aaron's rod and the tablets of the law. And there were the cherubim of glory over the propitiation cover, the mercy seat, upon which the blood of atonement was sprinkled by the high priest on the day of atonement. All of this was temporary. It pointed to Jesus as types, as emblems, to an ultimate fulfillment, the coming of the Lord. It was not intended to be permanent. It was adequate only as a prefigurement. The writer is pleading, don't return to the old. Do not go back to that which was only a shadow. Do not go to that which was temporary. And this applies to us. Don't return to things in ways that cannot save, that cannot redeem. Christian, you are saved by grace. Do not then go back. Where do you go for your certainty? Where do you go for a cleansing of conscience, for peace with God? Listen, the Belgic Confession, one of our great old confessions of faith, says this, We would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits and the suffering and the death of our Savior. And it is to that that the writer directs our attention. Do not go back. Do not return to those old things. Do not go somewhere else. Do not go to those things that cannot redeem. Do not go elsewhere. Reject the false notion that we have merit of our own and speak only of the merit of Jesus Christ. And so having shown that the tabernacle itself was intended to be temporary and to foreshadow the perfection of Christ who would come, He also, secondly, shows the inadequacy of the tabernacle ritual, the actual ritual that took place within the tabernacle itself. And about this, he says, there was imperfect access. 
There was daily service. The priests offered morning and evening, tended the candelabrum, changed the showbread. The second chamber, however, was more restricted, and we read in verse 7 of that chamber, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." Annually, therefore, once per year, only the high priest entered the most holy place with sacrificial blood, the blood not finally efficacious, but pointing ahead to the blood that would be shed that would be efficacious. So the entrance was on God's terms and pointed to the need of a final sacrifice, of which we read in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. By this the Holy Spirit was showing that perfect access to the Father was yet to come, and this awaited the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the tabernacle ritual was inadequate because of imperfect access. But the tabernacle ritual was also inadequate because it could not cleanse the conscience. In verses 9 and 10, the writer says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And what he's saying is this. The animal sacrifices pointed ahead for the cleansing of the conscience. They were useless. The conscience is our moral awareness of the judgment of God. Every person has an unworthy past. Every single one of us has an unworthy past. And there we stand in the presence of a holy God, absolutely perfect in His righteousness. Every person has an unworthy past and doesn't know what to do about it. Every person is guilty in Adam and adds to his guilt also by his personal sin. That's true of you and me by nature. Our inability to deal with guilt is shown by the countless ways that we try to deal with our guilt. We try to deal with our guilt through religion and moral systems and philosophies and labeling sin with medical and psychological terms by denial that we're guilty, by escape mechanisms of all sorts, but it doesn't work. Eternity is written on the heart. We stand before God as sinners justly deserving His displeasure. And so keep this issue clear. How to have a relationship with God, how to have a clean conscience. This is the issue upon which the church needs to focus her attention. And if the ritual instituted by God in the Old Testament could not cleanse the conscience, but could only point forward to the way for cleansing, then you certainly, by means of your own devising, will never be able to make your conscience clear. So we read in verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, and that time is the time of the coming of Jesus the time of fulfillment. F.F. F. Bruce says, the outward and earthly copy to the inward and heavenly reality. That's the theme here. Again, don't cling to what cannot save. That's the writer's theme. The gospel is repugnant to people who seek justification and acceptance with God in their own works. But the gospel is sweet to those who know that we can do nothing to earn acceptance with God. Not one thing. 
And so we have good news from heaven. Christ has come. He has shed his blood. He has fulfilled the old. He has brought to consummation all that was there prefigured in the tabernacle and in its ritual. And so the third thing we see emphasized in this text are the effects of the work of Christ. Now, the effects of Christ's work are manifold. But the writer focuses on just a few of the effects, those wonderful effects of the shed blood of Jesus. And the first effect, result, of the work of Jesus is that we have free access to God. In verses 11 and 12, it's put this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. A high priest goes into the heavenly sanctuary and there presents the merit of his own sacrifice for us. Christ, our high priest, took his seat above in the heavenly sanctuary, instituted the good things predicted, and now in God's presence gives us free access to God. And so we sing that hymn, Upon the Throne of God Above, or Before the Throne of God Above, I think we say. Before the Throne. You know, that's a great hymn. The words are wonderful, but actually my slip-up is better. Because Hebrews tells us that it's not simply before the throne of God, but that our great sacrificial high priest now sits upon the throne of God. And his sacrifice is totally accepted for his people. And so if you turn to chapter 10, just one chapter over, look at these wondrous words beginning in verse 19 that speaks of this access that we have to God. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see... Jesus, who shed his blood, has now taken the value of his shed blood, his merit, into the heavenly sanctuary. Heaven is now opened. I have no wrath toward you, says your God. I have provided my son to remove that wrath. This is how much I love you. I, the Lord of glory, upon his throne, I am now your friend in covenant with you. There is no fury, but only favor and friendship. Come. You have an open and free access to me. Let there be everlasting joy. Let your fears vanish. Through Jesus Christ, you have access into thy very throne room. So Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now that is the privilege that you have as a child of God. You have free access into the very presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. Are you availing yourself of that access? Do you go before him in prayer? Do you fellowship with your God? Do you take your heart? Do you take your sins? Do you take your need? Do you depend upon him? Do you know that there in him you sit? 
that you are in union with this great high priest, and now you have access to the God who created, the God who redeemed, the God who justly could have removed us in his wrath, who could have sent us to hell, poured out his wrath upon his Son in order that we might have access to his very throne, now a throne of grace. That's the effect of the work of Christ. But the writer mentions another effect, and that is that the redemption that is purchased by Christ is an eternal redemption. So we notice again in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What does he mean by this? He means this, that on the cross, Jesus accomplished what Aaron could only foreshadow. On the basis of his once-for-all shedding of his blood, Jesus can enter into the presence of the living God for us as our prevailing high priest and perfect sacrifice. He means that his redemption is eternal in its effects. It's an aorist participle, having secured, having secured for us eternal redemption. Priest and offering are one in Christ, and therefore the redemption that he purchased cannot fail, will not fail, can never fail. James Henley Thornwell put it beautifully. It is not that the sinner is accepted, but that Jesus is accepted. God looks only on the great intercessor and gives him power to give eternal life to all whose names are on his breastplate. How then can our redemption not be eternal? It is founded on Jesus' blood and intercession. If true believers could be lost, then Christ's blood would be thrown away. The purchase of his people would be in hell. The Father is not hearing the intercession of Jesus for believers, and Jesus is completely disappointed in his errand from heaven, and the devil would be the victor. I say, if true believers could be lost, then Christ's blood would be thrown away. But perish such blasphemy. Christ is the infinite God become man. He fulfills the eternal plan of the triune God to redeem us sinners. He will save his elect and bring us home to glory. His redemption, therefore, is eternal and immutable. We are free from the penalty of the law, and Jesus has paid our debt and paid that debt in full. So that with the hymn writer, Kinnock, we can sing, My full receipt may there be viewed, Graven with iron pins and blood in Jesus' hands inside. I'm safe, O death, O law and sin. You cannot bring me guilty in, for Christ was crucified. Eternal redemption secures, secures you for eternity. So, people of God, as we struggle in our obedience and we fail and we sin daily, and our Christian lives sometimes seem to us to be so up and so down, and things are so hard. Continue to press forward. Continue to grow in grace. Continue under the means of grace. Keep moving forward, but your salvation depends on Christ alone, not even upon your strivings, especially not your strivings, but upon Christ alone. I think it's important that we say that when Jesus Christ came into this world, sent by his Father, 
And the Son voluntarily came and obeyed the law we broke and shed His blood and paid the price for our sins. He knew exactly what He was doing. He knew exactly for whom He was paying the price of redemption. And He accomplished precisely what He intended to accomplish. Therefore, that salvation eternally secures the people of God. The effect of the atonement, access to the Father... Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. But also, the writer stresses another effect, result of the atonement, and that is a purified conscience. Verses 13 and 14, look at it. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now there in verse 13, there is a reference to Numbers chapter 19. When the animal was slain and the burned ashes were stored, so that when a person was ceremonially defiled... He was cleansed by being sprinkled with water mixed with the ashes of the heifer. But it was all prefigurement. It could not cleanse the conscience. What do you do about your conscience? What do you do about your guilt? What do you do about your conscience before a holy and a righteous God? What do you do about your, well, it's expressed in verse 14, your dead works? Look at verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What does that mean? It means that there is a sentence over our conscience, and that sentence is death. We are dead from birth. We are born in, and dead in trespasses and sins. It does not mean that we are inactive toward God. We are very active in our rebellion against God and His law. And when Adam sinned, if I may use the words of Herman Huxema, the motor of his ethical nature, his heart, was put into reverse. Excellent metaphor, isn't it? There you have a car going the right way down the road. All of a sudden there's rebellion and it's thrown into reverse. That's the human race since the fall of Adam. So that our works are from then on defined as dead works. They are works produced out of a heart that is dead spiritually. Huxima says, whether a man without the love of God in his heart, motivated by the carnal mind, holds up a bank or bequeaths a million dollars to a charitable institution, his works are always dead. His work is void of the love of God, motivated by enmity, pride, covetousness, or carnal fear, and therefore it is dead. And that's absolutely correct. And so what of the conscience? It is the witness within of the righteous judgment of God upon our dead works. As someone has said, a thousand voices of condemnation arise against him from within. They all pronounce but one sentence, death. His sins rise up against him, and they shall be fully exposed in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, when the book shall be opened and everyone shall be judged according as his work shall be. And so it's absolutely correct. Whether you are 
helping the grandmother across the street with her groceries, or whether you are shoving her in front of the car. And I'm not suggesting that those are equal. Some sins are more heinous than others. Nonetheless, the unbeliever doing either is doing a dead work, and his conscience is guilty before God. But Christ's blood is efficacious. True peace of conscience comes from realizing by faith that the sentence in my conscience has been written over by another sentence. Our Westminster Larger Catechism has beautiful words here. It says this, Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience. Procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance with boldness to the throne of grace of their persons and services. Now, Calvin is absolutely right when he says we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. That's true. But let me say something else, even though that's true. Let me add, do not seek purity of conscience in your own holiness. You'll never find it there. Many a true believer has reverted to a kind of bondage because he constantly attempts to find peace of conscience in his own action, in his own performance, constantly thinking that he lacks something. But you have Christ, you lack nothing. What's the problem here? It is a failure to understand the absolute perfection of the work of Jesus. Never are we to find peace of conscience in our own acting. Never do you find peace of conscience in your own doing. Not even Holy Spirit-inspired works are adequate for a cleansing of your conscience. The cleansing of the conscience may be found in one only, not ourselves, not in performing our duties. This is but to attempt to establish our own righteousness. No, no, a clean conscience is found only in acknowledging Christ as your righteousness and your peace. And so see yourselves dead with Christ, free from the condemnation of the law, that every bit of the debt has been paid in him, that you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, that you are raised in him, that he intercedes for you. This is the source of a clean conscience before God. But there's one other effect of the death of Christ, the work of Christ, the intercession of Christ that is mentioned that I briefly want to mention, and that is the sanctification of our service. And so he says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He means this, that now your conscience is cleansed by the the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you actually can begin to get busy for God and know that your works are acceptable, not because of you, but because of him. That outside of Christ, our works are spiritually dead. They originate in death. They are done by the living dead. They lead to death. But now, 
We are fully accepted in Christ, even my feeble efforts, mixed as they are with my my sin and yet true desire to serve Jesus, even my feeble efforts to serve him are accepted in Jesus, my high priest. And that gives you confidence in service because you don't have to wait until you reach perfection in order to serve the Lord. You would never serve the Lord. You just get out there and you serve the Lord in the confidence that your feeble efforts are received and accepted through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I was remembering how John Rogers, the English reformer, it was said that when he walked to his death, it was as if he marched to his wedding. That kind of confidence, you know, that kind of confidence, where does it come from? That kind of confidence comes from a conscience that is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb so that you may not be going to your martyrdom, but whatever your circumstances may be, you also can march in the joy of confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. But there's one other thing we need to see fourthly before we conclude the text. Why can the blood of Jesus give us access? Why can the blood of Jesus cleanse our conscience? Why can the blood of Jesus do these things? And the answer is given for us in the text. Oh, what wondrous power belongs to the cross. If the cross can blot out the verdict of condemnation against my conscience, it must be powerful indeed. If the blood of Christ can proclaim the verdict of righteousness over my soul, it must be powerful indeed. Why can Christ's blood do this? Well, again, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He speaks of the self-sacrifice, the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus in verse 14. According to God's eternal agreement, God's plan, the Son voluntarily came and he shed his blood. He speaks of that sacrifice being without spot. For if we are to be saved, there must be a perfect sacrifice in our place to take our condemnation. And this he did, according to the text, through the eternal spirit. Let me simply say, the reason that our Savior can do these things for us is because of who he is. Because the infinite Nature of Christ gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. Then he can come and give to you open access to the Father and purification of your conscience, eternally secured in his own shed blood. Now, I told you this was good news from heaven, is it not? Is that not good news from heaven? For every sinner... So in Christ's blood, we find the answer to a defiled conscience, and we now come into God's presence. So now the verdict is not guilty. Our sins cannot condemn us. The curse of the law is removed. The devil can no longer accuse. We have eternal redemption. We have a redemption that cannot fail. And we have the source of the cleansing of a deeply defiled and dirty conscience. Unbeliever? That blood is able to cleanse the vilest sinner. Whatever you are, whatever you have done, 
the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse the vilest sinner. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Spurgeon rightly said, God ceases to be God when he ceases to have mercy upon the soul who seeks pardon through the blood of Christ. Come to him with all of your sin, with all of your guilt. Throw your dead works aside. They avail nothing before God. Come to him for cleansing from your sin. What then is the power of the blood of Christ, people of God, as we come to the table? Let's consider it. The power of the blood of Jesus is this, that his blood takes hold of sinners like us and purchases us from our sins, reconciles us to God, justifies us with Christ's righteousness, redeems us from our guilt, regenerates our souls, gives persevering grace and takes us all the way to heaven, gives us eternal redemption. That is the power of the cross, and that we celebrate as we come to the table this morning. And God's people said,